morning. How are you on this nice springy day? Pretty day, isn't it? Nice and cool. If you'd open your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 3. In this lesson, we are going to conclude our look at the sixth Revelation church letter, and that is, of course, the letter to the saints at Philadelphia. In the previous lesson that we looked at last week, part one, we talked about some of the known details regarding the first century Asia Minor city of Philadelphia and then some of the details about the church which was established there. We learned that in various interesting ways, the church had taken on some of the characteristics of the city in which she was located. Remember, the city had been established as a gateway into the east, into the Orient, in order to propagate Greek culture and Greek religion and everything else affiliated with, um, with the Greek culture. She was established as a city to... Um, Hellenize the East. And according to the Lord's words of commendation, we learn that the church of brotherly love, the church of Philadelphia, was faithful to take advantage of open-door opportunities to be a missionary church, you know, one which was dedicated to proclaiming the gospel message. Perhaps she took great advantage of the fact that she was situated right on the Roman road, the road that went from Rome to the east, and, you know, invited weary travelers into their homes. Maybe some of the Christians there invited the travelers to come home with them and serve them a meal and then shared the gospel with them. Perhaps they invited them to church. You know, back in those days, they thought nothing of assembling together with other believers almost every single night of the week. They just didn't come together on Sunday morning. Well, whatever they did, it's obvious from the Lord's letter that they had taken advantage of his open doors his open doors of opportunity for service. And so the church had become for the gospel message what the city had been for the expansion of Hellenism. In addition to having discussed then some of the known facts about the city of Philadelphia and then some of the facts that we knew about the church which existed there, we also talked about the Lord's description of himself, his salutation description, which he gave to this church in the first part of verse 7. He described himself as being holy, and what else? True, and as the one who had the keys of David, which spoke, of course, of his authority and his control as the rightful Messiah King over the throne of David. He is also, he said, the only one who can open and shut doors, whether those are doors to salvation initially or then after one becomes a member of his kingdom, doors to service. He is the one who opens doors to service, missionary work, whatever kind of work for the Lord. And then also another kind of a door that he opens. We talked about a door to, who knows, salvation, service, and it starts with an S, safety. You know, the door, like we talked about, the door um, for the rapture, when he protects the the church from going through that hour of temptation which shall come upon the whole world to try them that are earth dwellers. And then we went into um, two special assurances which the Lord gives only to this church. We didn't have that assurance category in any of the other church letters. And those were, first of all, in verse 9, that he promised them vindication from their enemies. Here's my belated picture of the rapture. I'm already off doesn't take me long to get off, does it? And then he promised them the um, 
in, the, in verse 10, deliverance. So he promised them vindication from their enemies and deliverance from the hour of temptation that would come upon the whole world. And we talked about why we closed up our lesson last week. We talked about why, at least I believe, that the Lord will come for his church before the tribulation, pre-tribulation view of the rapture of the church. And I thought about, you know, what loving bridegroom would purposely pour out wrath on his own dearly beloved bride? But in this lesson, we're going to now discuss the last three subdivisions under the fourth part of our outline, which is called Declaration from Christ. We'll be looking at, first of all, the Lord's admonition or his warning to the Philadelphia church, which is found in verse 11. Then we're going to look at his promised awards, and there are five of them to this church. That's the most awards we find to overcomers in any of the seven churches, five. And that we find in verse 12. And then finally, we'll look at his appeal in verse 13. So let's begin by looking at his admonition in verse 11. If you'll look with me, I will read that verse. It says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. This is the Lord's warning to the church. We noted also in our previous lesson how the Lord's promise of his coming gets progressively closer in each of the last four Revelation church letters. You know, each of the last four churches continues until the time of the Lord's second coming. To Thyatira he had said, hold fast till I come. And to Sardis then he gave the warning to be watchful and twice in verses 2 and 3 of Revelation chapter 3 to Sardis he said, I will come. I will come as a thief in the night. You won't know at what hour I'll be coming. But twice he said, I will come. And then to Philadelphia, we see here, he says, Behold, I come quickly. And then to the church at Laodicea, the last, the seventh church, he says, Behold, I stand at the door. There he is. He's right there. Now, we might wonder why the Lord would alert each group in each of the various stages of church history, represented, of course, by these seven original Asia Minor churches, why he would warn them of his coming if he wasn't coming until many, many years after some of these periods were ended. Well, for one thing, we need to understand that the word quickly, as it's used in this verse, where he says, Behold, I come quickly, that that word bears the thought, not so much that he would come real soon, but that when he does come, he will come with great speed. He will come so suddenly that there, you know, it will be like in the twinkling of an eye. It will be in a singular moment of time. And he will come so quickly, so suddenly, that there will be no further opportunity for any believer to attempt to gain any further rewards, any further eternal rewards, or for any believer to try to get his life in order so that he won't be caught ashamed at the Lord's coming. That's what the word means. Furthermore, we must also remember that the New Testament writers and readers didn't know 
that it would, in fact, be many centuries before the Lord's return for his church. They only knew that he could come at any one moment in time. And this was emphasized in the words of the New Testament writers that they were inspired to record by the Holy Spirit. You know, God, and the reason for this is God the Holy Spirit and God the Father and God the Son know that it is very important for Christians to always keep in mind that Jesus Christ can come at any time, at any one moment. In other words, that his return is imminent. That's what imminent means, that it could be at any one moment in time. Nothing needs to precede it. No signs, nothing needs to occur before his coming. Why does God know that this is important? Because he knows that this constant expectancy produces right thinking and it produces right living. A continual awareness of the Lord's imminent arrival fosters a spirit of preparedness. And this is a very powerful aid in sanctification, in keeping us separated, in keeping us holy, you know, living a holy life when we know that he could come at any one moment. When believers rightfully understand that the Lord Jesus might come tomorrow, then it gives them incentive to work for today, to redeem their time wisely today, and to purify themselves today. So we read urgency in the Lord's words to the Philadelphia church when he said, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Because his return could be at any one moment, he was admonishing his church and all true believers through this letter to hold on to what they have, which was so far an excellent commendation. The Philadelphia church had an excellent commendation. So hold on to that, he's telling them, he's warning them, so that you won't lose your full reward. They had been faithful. We've talked about this. They'd been very faithful to take advantage of the doors of opportunity that the Lord had given to them for service and for mission work. And they had been very careful. It also told us in this, um, what we looked at last week, they'd been very careful to keep his word and to not deny his name. And so he's warning them here to hold on to these things. In other words, to keep on keeping on in all of these areas until his coming for them so that they wouldn't lose their crown. They wouldn't lose their rewards. So the natural question we ask after we read this verse is, does this mean that it's possible for a Christian to earn a crown, to earn rewards for heaven, and then to lose them? Is that what this verse is saying? Yes, that's exactly what this verse is saying. Let's read it. It says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. It is possible for a Christian to earn a crown and then to lose it. The Apostle John wrote about this same exact subject in Second John 8. If you want to look at that, you don't have to because I have it right up here. So you might as well just look at it up here. Under divine inspiration, he took up his pen and he wrote these words. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a what? A full reward. 
it is possible to lose one's rewards, to lose one's crowns. However, please, please make sure that you understand that here we are talking about losing one's rewards. You know, at the big awards ceremony that we'll have at the judgment seat of Christ. But I am not talking, and these verses are not talking about losing your salvation. So don't leave here being confused and thinking that I'm saying and teaching and that the Bible is teaching that you can lose your salvation. No, this is only talking about one's eternal rewards. Even if a Christian should have all of his works that he has done here in this life add up to nothing more than wood, hay, and stubble when he gets to the judgment seat of Christ, even if that was to happen and all of his works, maybe he did all of his works with the wrong motive, you know, maybe to give glory to himself rather than to the Lord. But let's say all of his works were burned up as wood, hay, and stubble, yet he is still saved. And it says, yet so as by fire, in verse uh, 15 of 1 Corinthians 3. This is exactly what, the, what Paul was describing will be the case in, you know, in many cases at the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema seat where all believers will one day appear. That is where our works will be evaluated and rewards will either be given or lost depending on the kind of work and the motive behind the work that we did while we were here on earth. And here, in fact, is what, the, what Paul wrote about this forthcoming event. Show you another picture that I have of <clears throat> the judgment seat of Christ. Paul wrote this. He said, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. That's 1 Corinthians 3, verses 13 to 15. So although salvation cannot be taken from a true born-again Christian, his reward or his what some of his crowns can be taken from him. And this is why Paul also warned in Colossians 2.18, he said, let no man beguile you of your reward. In every one of the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 that we have studied, we've learned about some kind of a form of evil, some kind of evil which was present to try to steal away from the Christians their their crowns. The enemies the enemy of the saints at Ephesus was a cold heart. That was the enemy they were faced with. In Smyrna, and that was sort of a self-induced one. That was their own flesh, right? That was their enemy. To Smyrna the Christians were being tempted by discouragement. Remember this was the persecuted church. So they were being tempted to lose their crowns by being discouraged. Uh, through their trials and by their poverty and by the persecution that they were facing, not only from the Romans, but also from those of the synagogue of Satan. These were the enemies which were attempting to beguile the saints 
of their eternal rewards. And then in Pergamos, there were the false teachers of Balaanism and of the Nicolaitans who were attempting to steal away the crowns of the believers. In Thyatira, we had Jezebel and her followers. They were doing their best to rob the Christians of any already earned eternal rewards. And here, even in Philadelphia, the tares of the synagogue of Satan, which we read about in verse 9, were present. And we can be sure that they were attempting to ensnare the Philadelphian Christians. Christians can lose their earned crowns or their earned rewards. They can lose them through discouragement, you know, just throwing up their hands and, and giving up. Just being totally discouraged with their Christian life. Not giving up their faith in Christ, but just giving up living for him and serving him. They can uh, lose their crown through worldliness, which is probably the biggest enemy we have in the United States of abundance. The magnetic draw of money or of success or popularity can rob a Christian of his crowns. Even his friends and his family can pull him down until he loses his crowns. Christ was warning the Philadelphian church to be very, very careful that no man, including, of course, themselves, that no one, and often we are our worst enemies, aren't we, that no one would slip in and take away their crown. So how should we prepare ourselves so that we don't lose any of our crowns? What do you think the best way to prepare yourself I remember Dr. Lehman Strauss, every time I would see that man up at Word of Life or wherever I'd run into him, he'd always say, please pray that I am faithful to the end, that I die with my boots on. I even wrote a poem and dedicated it to him. I called, you know, that he would die with his boots on. And he did. He was faithful to run the race right up to the end. And this is something we should all be praying for. I pray for it all the time because it's so easy to, you know, to, to fail at the at the end. You know, that's why we're to run the race to the finish line and don't quit before we get there. How, how should we best prepare ourselves so that we don't lose what we've already gained, you know? Exactly. That's why you're all here this morning. It is so vitally important to stay in the Word. That's why I, I just always ad- admonish you or encourage you or whatever the Word would be to stay in the Word over the summer. You know, we'll be breaking for the summer months. Stay in the Word. If you'd like to get some of the tapes, you know, please let me know. Or even call me during the summer months. You know, I'm just, I just live down there in Carthage. Call me and I'll, I'll meet you and pre- give you some tapes or whatever, you know, books. Read the Bible. Stay in the Word all during the summer. Paul wrote in um, Ephesians 6, 10 to 13, the best way for us to do battle is to put on the full armor of God. He said, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against what? flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. So let's get that armor on.
let's have our armor on every single day because the Satan, if he's already lost the battle for our soul, will do all that he possibly can to shoot those fiery darts to get us to to lose our eternal rewards and to lose our testimony so that no one else comes to Christ because of our lives. In Galatians 6, 9, we're encouraged not to weary in well-doing. And that's easy to do. It's easy to get weary in well-doing. You know, life is kind of mundane at times, isn't it? And it's hard in the morning sometimes to get up. I love that cartoon. (laughs) She just bopped him on the head with her pocketbook. Not going to let him steal her joy. But it is, the Christian life is not easy. I'm encouraging my two students in college right now because they're going through their final exams and things are getting tough. And my daughter was having a real hard day last week and she called and she said, Mom, I can't study one more minute. My brain's going to fall out. And I said, when the tough get, when the things get tough, the tough get going, you know, and I gave her some scripture verses and I said, you know, she said, it's just so every day I have to get up and I have to go to classes and I have to study. I said, you know what happens later on? You get married, and then you have a baby, and you have to get up, and you have to change diapers, and you have to feed bottles, and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I said, you know what I do? You know, she's always looking. They're always, people are always looking and saying, I can't wait till I get to this stage. I can't wait till I get to this stage. Every stage, I said, there is no stage where things don't get mundane. It's hard to get up every day and say, oh, what I got to do this again today? You know, the same old routine, but... Let's not get weary in well-doing. You know, let's not ever, ever weary in doing the things of the Lord. We have to always remind ourselves, and that's why we need to encourage one another. That's why we need to come together, encourage one another, keep on keeping on. I need a pep talk all the time to keep on. Also, we have the promise in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight, where Paul wrote, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I don't know which one is being steadfast in this picture. It's probably the donkey, and that's probably a better picture of us. (laughs) And then James 2, James, not James chapter 2, but James also encouraged believers to hold fast until the coming of the Lord. He said, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. I don't think that we have to be patient a whole lot longer. Bob Yandel was just in here and gave me some news about something that's going on in, um, in Europe, which is very exciting. It sounds like things are really, really being put together at a very quick pace. But let's be patient. He could come today. He could come tomorrow. He could not, and maybe he won't come for another century. I don't know. But it looks like he's coming soon, so let's be patient till he gets here. He says, James goes on and says, Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. You know, when you plant a garden, you have to be patient, don't you? Things don't pop up overnight. But ye also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Though if we persevere, we will reap in due season. We must remain faithful. We must hold fast to our testimony and to the purity of a separated walk, which isn't easy in this day and age. Encourage your young people, please, your children, your grandchildren, to live a separated walk. 
because they are going to stand out like diamonds in this dark world. We must not grow weary in our well-doing. We must not faint. We must keep on persevering and working. You know, there is no such thing as retirement in Christian work. We don't ever get to retire. I hope to be teaching this Bible study until, like Layman's house, until the day I kick the bucket. Here goes, speaking of kicking the bucket, these are kicking the bucket. <gasps> there should be no such thing as retirement. We must not let men or Satan beguile us with strange or subtle teachings. And that's something else that's so easy to fall into a trap. You know, be careful who you listen to. Be careful who you watch on television. Be careful what books you read because you could be beguiled so easily. There's so much weird stuff out there that sounds, some of it sounds pretty good, but it's, you know, that little bit of poison mixed in with a lot of truth. And he would love to beguile us with compromises in different areas of our Christian life. And don't think he doesn't know where each one of our weak points is. He knows. And that's, of course, why we should constantly, constantly be in the Word. We should take also advantage of every open door of opportunity for service and for witness which the Lord places before us. When he opens that door in faith, just step through it. Don't question your abilities. Just step through it. If he's opened the door, he's going to give you the abilities for whatever service is beyond that door. And we need to do this. We need to listen to him, only to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Let's not listen to the voices of other people unless it's someone you know is a real godly person, that they're really in a close walk with the Lord then you might want to seek their advice. But the Holy Spirit using the Word of God is what should be your guide because people can give you their, the wrong opinions many times. Don't always listen to friends and family or even other church members. Listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Now, why must we do these things? Because it is possible for us to lose our rewards through sin, through worldliness, through neglect, through bad attitudes, through wrong motives, through backsliding, weariness, compromise, false beliefs, etc. It is possible to lose our crowns. So let's remember the Lord's admonition to Philadelphia, which is also, of course, to us in verse 11, where he says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast, which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Hold fast, I beseech you. Hold fast. And if you see me slipping, would you please remind me to hold fast? All right, let's look now at his award, verse 12. And here he promises five special awards to the Philadelphian overcomer. He says, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heavens from my God, heaven, and I will write upon him my new name. To the Philadelphia overcomer, which is, of course, these promises are also to all overcomers of the whole church age, he gave five special promised awards. Now, some commentators told me there were three in there. Some told me there were four. Some told me there were five. Well, when I counted, I came up with five. So that's what I say. There are five there. 
first of all, he will be made a pillar in the temple of God. That's one, right? Then he tells the overcomer that he's going to have eternal security by telling him that he shall go no more out. I see that as a separate promise. Then third, he says the overcomer is going to have the name of God written upon him. That's three. Four, he promises the overcomer that he'll have the name of the city of God written upon him, which is the new Jerusalem. So that's four. And the fifth promise, as I see it, is that the overcomer is then going to have Christ's new name also written upon him. Remember before we had a promise back in the church, uh, the letter to the church at, um, which church was it? I think it was... uh, Yeah, Pergamos, I think verse 17, a new name. Yeah, in verse 17 of chapter 2, we had a promise that we'd have a new name. Remember inside of that white stone? And it said that that no one would know except the one receiving it. Well, that's the new name that we will receive, our new name. And remember we discussed, we thought it would maybe be a, a pet name that the Lord would have for us a special name that only we'll know and he will know. Well, now here in the letter to the Philadelphia church, he's promising the overcomer that they'll receive his new name. So this is something different. So I see five promises here in verse 12. The first promise that he made to the overcomers is that he would make them a pillar in the temple of his God. Now, the citizens of Philadelphia, remember, would be very, very familiar with pillars as would most first-century Christians, because of the great amount of temples which existed in the ancient world at that time, especially in Philadelphia. Remember, Philadelphia was known as, who remembers? Little, right, it was known as Little Athens because there were so many temples there. In the ancient world, massive pillars, as you see in this picture, supported temples. So... Pillars are symbolic of security. They also suggest steadfastness and dependability and security. You know, we say as Christians, don't we say that he or she is a pillar of the church? That speaks of their um, steadfastness, their dependability, their faithfulness to support the work of Christ and to take the gospel to the lost. And that's exactly what this church was doing. So it was a pillar church. They were devoted to holding fast to God's word and honoring his name. Well, in the ancient world, it was also a custom to honor or to memorialize an important person by erecting a pillar in one of the temples. Perhaps they'd ask the person what their, who their favorite God was, and they'd you know, erect a pillar in the temple to that particular God and then carve the individual's name on it, the individual who was being honored or memorialized. And then that pillar would stand as a constant... Well, there... We've gotten out of order a little bit there. That pillar would stand as a constant reminder of that particular individual. Kind of like some churches put a little plaque, you know, to memorialize somebody. They, they would do it with a pillar. So Christ was essentially saying that in the heavenly temple of God, the overcomers of his church will be its pillars. However, the heavenly temple of God is not a building made of stone. In Revelation 21:22, we find John describing the new Jerusalem, which is 
heaven. And he says this about it. He says, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. You know what that's saying? Who, where, what's the temple in heaven? Jesus Christ and God, God the Father and Jesus Christ are the temple. There is no, you know, physical temple to look at. They are the temple. The overcomer's position eternally is one of strength in Christ and steadfastness in Christ and honor in Christ. Their names, you see, our names, if you are an overcomer, one who has placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, his death on your behalf, if you have been born again, then you are an overcomer. Our names are not going to be merely carved in some earthly stone pillar which supports a temple dedicated to some false god and one day will, you know, crumble and fall. All of those old temples, there isn't one that's in mint condition. They've all crumbled and fallen. The overcomers themselves, we ourselves, will be an eternally important part of the pillar. We're not just going to have our name carved in the pillar. We are going to be the pillar. We are going to be a pillar of the temple of God, and the temple of God is not a man-made stone temple. It's not even a you know, what, what you'd call tangible kind of a temple. It's the temple is God the Father and God the Son. So I can't really figure out in my finite little brain what this promise is. I just know it's a glorious promise that one day we're going to be pillars of God and his Son. I mean, that's incredible. I don't really know what he's saying. I just know it's magnificent. The promise is not only one of eternal security and honor, and identity with Christ and with God. But it's also a promise that one day we will be in the New Jerusalem. We will be standing there as pillars of Christ's church. You know, it won't just be said of us that we are, we're a pillar in our local church. We'll be pillars of the church in Christ and God for all of eternity. So that's something to really think about. We will be eternal trophies of his grace and his power to save and glorify formerly hopeless helpers, helpless sinners. Can you imagine, you know, sinners that we are, saved by grace, one day we're going to be pillars in the temple of God, and he is the temple. I mean, that just kind of boggles the imagination. Well, secondly, the Lord has promised the overcomers that they would go no more out. And this promise also speaks of security. To the Christians of Philadelphia, this, would prom this promise would be of special significance. Remember how we talked about the fact that they sat on a geological fault, and so they were always being prone to earthquakes, and there was volcanoes in the mountains behind them, so there were a lot of disruptions in volcanic activity. And so these people spent much of their time going in and out of their city. They lived in constant fear and readiness to depart the city so that the falling buildings wouldn't crush them or the flowing lava wouldn't bury them alive. So they lived, in other words, in a continual state of insecurity. But the Lord was promising the Christian overcomers of that city, and of course Philadelphia Christians throughout all the church age, a future security without any fear and without any necessity to ever go out. 
they would live peacefully and eternally in the new Jerusalem and nothing would, which would ever occur in future eternity. Did you ever think about future eternity? Sometimes I do. I, I sit there and I think, well, what about way down the road sometime if there was another angel like Lucifer and another fall? Well, there isn't going to be. There never, ever will be another situation like that. No sin will ever, ever be allowed in our new home in heaven. There will never be another fall of angels or a fall of saved, glorified human beings. No child of God will sin again as Adam had done when he had been placed into his perfect home. Because sin had entered into his perfect environment and because he chose willingly to enter into that sin, Adam was driven from that perfect environment, wasn't he? He was driven from that garden. But the promise that the Lord is making to his redeemed church is that sin will never, ever enter into the new perfect environment, into the new Jerusalem. And therefore, no member of God's family will ever be deprived of the heavenly garden or driven from it as Adam had been. Never, ever will we have to go out. What a wonderful, wonderful promise of security that is that the Lord is giving us. Essentially, he's saying, when you come into my eternal city, you need not fear. That's what this man is doing, going into the eternal city. You need not ever fear that you will have to leave it. Even eons of time into the future eternity, you don't need to fear you'll ever have to leave. You are there to stay forever with Christ in total peace and in total security. After all, you're a pillar of the temple, and the temple is God. Now, the third promise that we find to the overcomer in the Philadelphian church letter is that Christ will write upon him the name of his God. Another frequent custom in ancient times was for a slave to have the name of his owner branded on him. They even did this uh, during the, the time when we had slaves in this country. They would brand the name upon the slave. Horrible. Overcomers, somehow or another, are, are going to be labeled as permanently belonging to God himself. And I don't know about you, but there is no one I would rather belong to than an all-powerful, all-wise, all-perfect, all-holy, all-loving, omnipresent, eternally existing God who loved me so much that he willingly came to this earth to die for me. I would rather have Jesus than anything, right? I can't imagine being branded by a better name than the name of God himself. You know, I don't know why he was willing to go to a shameful, painful, rugged old cross for a sinner like me. I don't know why he wanted to give his life for me and shed his blood for me. And I don't know why he wanted to adopt me into his family as his beloved child. But I am sure glad he did. I mean, I can't understand it, but I'm sure glad he did it. And I can't imagine a greater honor or a greater privilege than to be branded with his name forever. And if that isn't enough, 
that we're going to be a pillar in the temple of God himself, that we're not ever going to have to leave our eternal home, and that we're going to have the name of God branded upon us forever and ever. The Lord went on and he gave us a fourth and a fifth promise. He's, we're also going to have the name of the city of God upon us, which is the New Jerusalem, and then the name of Christ, the new name of Christ, also upon us. Now, why would we have the name of the New Jerusalem written upon us, you know, symbolically speaking? Why would we have that name written on us? Well, because it's our new home. Actually, it's the place of our citizenship right now, isn't it? Our citizenship is not here in this world. We're pilgrims just passing through. We're temporarily living on surf, which is uh, ruled over by the prince of this world. Our real address and our permanent address is in heaven. We're already branded, we could say. We're already branded, so to speak, with that address. So we will never, ever again have to worry about a change in our zip code. We will never have to worry about a rural root box being changed to a street address. We'll never have to worry about a change in our area code again. You know, I've had to change those things four times, and I've lived in the same house four times. I've had to change all the records, the checkbooks, and the, oh, it's such a mess. But we will never, ever have to change our address again when we get to heaven. We'll have the same permanent address forever and ever. And to that, we all say, amen. Now, the final thing which Christ is going to write upon the overcomer is his own new name. We're not only going to have the name of God upon us, showing that we belong to God, and we're not only going to have the name of the New Jerusalem on us, showing our place of eternal residence, but we're also going to bear the new name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, upon us. Now, we do not know what this new name will be because it hasn't yet been revealed to us. This is the end of side one. Please turn the cassette over for the continuation of this message. His new name is mentioned again over in Revelation 19.12, the fact that he will have a new name. There John, in his prophetic vision, saw Christ coming out of heaven at the time of his second coming, and he described him in this way. He said his eyes were as flame, a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a new name written that no man knew but he himself. Now, although we do not know what this new name for the Lord Jesus Christ will be, we can be sure that it is a name of authority because Christ is given a name which is above all names. His new name will speak of his exalted position after God has put all things into subjection to his son, under his son. The amazing thing is that this unknown new name is going to be written upon all overcomers of the church, thereby demonstrating our union with Christ. You know, when a woman marries, she is given her husband's name, right? She receives that new name, her husband's name, because they are joined in union and in identity with one another. Christ is the bridegroom and the church is his bride, and therefore when the marriage ceremony occurs, we will receive his name, his new name. 
to have his name written upon us is to share in his likeness. You know, because we've talked about this over and over again. A name represents an individual's person. So we will be sharing in his likeness. And in fact, this is exactly what the scripture tells us, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. 1 John 3, 2. So I would trust today that you are a part of the faithful church and that you are indeed an overcomer because you have placed your faith in Christ. You believe in his death, his resurrection, uh, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension on your behalf for your sins, that you have asked him to be your Savior and that you have acknowledged his rightful place as Lord over your life. And I would also pray and hope that regardless of the type of church you attend, that at least within that church, you are a Philadelphia type of member and that you are holding fast to what you have and that you keep, you are keeping the word of God alive in your own heart and life. And as much as possible that you are keeping the word of God alive in your church. Don't let anyone discourage you or tempt you into a compromise or into sin so that you might lose what you have labored so hard to maintain. And always, always remember that Christ is coming, and when he comes, it will be quick, and he will bring with him all of these promised awards that we've been talking about. So we need to be ever ready for his imminent appearance so that we're not caught ashamed at his appearing. Well, the appeal is, in verse 13, he that hath an ear... A spiritual ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. You see, this isn't just a message for that first century church in Philadelphia. It's a message for all churches and all Christians throughout the church age. Now I'm going to give you an introduction to our study of Laodicea. Remember I told you these last few weeks we'd be going a little bit longer than usual so that we can finish up all seven churches in we've got only two more lessons so i want to um begin our study of the seventh and final revelation church letter which is the letter to the church of the laodiceans by spending the rest of our time this morning discussing some events some literal events which occurred in history beginning with the late 1700s and going into the 1900s into our century events which resulted in the apostasy of our modern era you see although there is still a remnant of philadelphia type churches in existence today we are living in a world which is largely dominated by what kind of church and christian laodicean we are in the laodicean stage which is the final stage of church history how did christendom get in this condition that's what we'll be talking about for the remainder of this time today, this morning, and then the beginning of our lesson next week before we then get into the actual letter to the Laodiceans. And I think, I hope that this will give us a better understanding of how Christendom got into the pathetic, lukewarm stage that it is in today. Well, Satan had not been able to divide 
and corrupt Protestantism to the point. I mean, he did a lot of division there, but he wasn't able to do it to the point that the Church of Jesus Christ was ineffective, totally. In fact, it was out of Protestantism that the Church of Philadelphia evolved. So there was good, great good that came out of Protestantism. So the Lord's age-old enemy was more determined than ever to rid the world of the true gospel message and belief that the Bible is God's inspired revelation to man. So with this as his goal, Satan was behind the scenes of some new movements which have worked together over the last two and a half centuries to bring about a chain reaction of apostasy. And this apostasy has succeeded in affecting the greater part of Christendom, including much, if not most, of Protestantism in our century, in the 20th century. One of these new movements, which was prompted by Satan, was an intellectual movement which is known as rationalism. Rationalism developed in the late 17th and early 18th century in uh, Europe. Rationalists emphasized the importance of human reason, the human intellect, and also the five senses. They taught that these were the keys to discovering what is true and what isn't true. They opposed divine revelation. And they led their followers to look at the universe as a machine which operates by natural laws and not by divine providence or divine intervention. Well, during this time in history, knowledge of non-Christian religions grew, and those who held themselves out as great thinkers began to look for a natural religion which would serve as a common ground to all man. Rationalism was accompanied by another teaching, which is known as empiricism. Empiricism is pretty much the result of the philosophy of Immanuel Kant, K-A-N-T, who lived 1724 to 1804. I thought it was interesting that his name was Emmanuel. It almost sounds like his parents must have been believers, because that means God with us. And here they produce this child who grew up to, to uh, teach this false philosophy. Empiricists taught that no idea should be thought of or taught as truth unless it had been established as truth through repeated experimental tests that could be observed by human senses. Essentially, they said that it was only reasonable to believe in things which can be demonstrated as being true through the scientific method. So when you think of empiricism, you can think of experimentationism, or you can think of scientific method. That's what they believe in. So they ruled out beliefs in truths that have come to us by way of divine revelation, you know, through the prophets and through Jesus Christ. Because they say such truths deal with spiritual matters and spiritual matters cannot be scientifically tested or observed by the senses necessarily. Now, there were people walking this earth who saw some miracles by their senses, didn't they? And it blew them away. But they, they rule out 
any divine revelation whatsoever, and they rule out anything that they can't see. You know, show me, and I'll believe. Test it, and then I'll believe. But, of course, there are a lot of things which can only be spiritually discerned, right? Well, rationalism and empiricism resulted in the birth of a new religion which was called deism. Deism was the natural religion or the religion of reason, which is what they call it, for which the rationalists had been looking. Deism is the belief that the universe is governed solely by natural law, apart from any divine providence or intervention. However, deism, the deists, could not explain the origin of the universe apart from God. And therefore, the inventors of this new religion taught that a supreme being up there somewhere created the universe, but that after he created it, he withdrew himself from it completely, and then he had nothing more to do with it. Well, from this major concept of deism came the following subsequent teachings. They said that there, therefore, is no supernatural revelation of truth to man. In other words, what are they eliminating? The word of God. They say there is no such thing as a miracle. I think it was a miracle for a supreme being to create all that is. So I think they're a little inconsistent in that. But they say there's no such thing as a miracle. They say the Bible is not a supernaturally inspired book. Um, and that Jesus Christ was not man, a God incarnate in a man. Now, another concept of deism is that man's only means of discovering truth is through human reason, again, by use of the scientific method. And this is where empiricism and rationalism both help to influence this new religion. Deism essentially ignores the problem of human sin. And it teaches instead that man is primarily good. And therefore, that man, because he's primarily good, he is perfectible. Deists believe that continued human progress will eventually perfect this world. In other words, that an earthly, it's a joke, isn't it? That an earthly utopia will one day come about by man's efforts and not by the supernatural intervention of God as the Bible teaches. So you can see that deism is the ancestor of liberal Protestantism. It's the ancestor of modernism. Well, Satan was very busy during the late 18th and the early 19th centuries collecting building materials to use in laying the foundation for his apostate superstructure. Some of these building materials were the philosophies of men like Hegel and Schleiermacher. Hegel, who died in 1831, stated that the true essence of Christianity lays in its great ideas, great ideas in Christianity, but not in its historical truth. So the historical accuracy of the Bible, they said, was not important. Hegel said was not important, and of course all his followers. He's saying only the ideas of the Bible are important. So an inerrant Bible is not essential to true Christianity. That's what Hegel taught. Now, Schleiermacher philosophized that true religion is neither belief 
in or, or be obedience to a system of theology or a code of moral absolutes. Rather, religion is an immediately experienced relation to God. To Schleiermacher, doctrine and standards of conduct aren't, weren't important. The only thing in religion, he said, that is important is one's experience. Now, you, if you know anything about religions, you can have a lot of strange experiences. You know, the, the Mormons talk about a burning in the bosom, and, and Hindus go into the nirvana and have all kinds of uh, visions and things. You can have lots of experiences. But that is what he says is important in religion. He also stated that the Bible is not a divinely inspired book. They're all saying that, aren't they? You see the attack against the scripture. He said it is a human it is human interpretations of men's religious experiences. So Schleiermacher concluded that religious experience is the final authority for faith and practice and not the scripture. Now, all of these new philosophies brought about the development of destructive criticism of the Bible, a movement which appeared at the time that Schleiermacher was doing his writing. Many Protestant scholars began to abandon their belief in the inspired Bible, and instead they substituted the idea that it is merely a human record of the development, the development of man's um, religious consciousness. They admitted that the Bible was of some historical value, but they now said that the Bible contains errors, that it contains contradictions, that it has a lot of legends and myths in it, and that it also has widely different concepts about God. Scholars began to look at the Bible as they would any other piece of literature, and they questioned its reliability, especially when it came to creation and to matters such as Noah's flood. They also rejected predictive prophecy, that there is no, you know, that's why they had to say that the, Dan the book of Daniel wasn't written when it was written, and they push, push the date way up, and, and they divide Isaiah up in all kinds of different authors. They say Moses didn't really write the Pentateuch. They do all kinds of acrobatics to avoid prophetic prophecy. And they rejected miracles and the teaching, of course, about the future literal kingdom on earth that was either completely rejected or interpreted by their own standards of thought. And this, of course, is what we talked about when we were talking about the way we will be interpreting the book of Revelation. We talked about amillennialists and postmillennialists and all that. Well, during these same years, science was bringing about many new discoveries and many new inventions through the industrial revolution and so there was just an abundance of things men were being provided with an unprecedented unprecedented abundance of material goods and so consequently many people were making mammon their god and they were making materialism their religion even christians were getting so absorbed with temporal, earthly, physical things that it was choking out their priority for God and for his house of worship. 
and for work for him, service to him, and for time spent in his word. It was also in this period of time that Karl Marx published his books entitled Communist Manifesto and Das Kapital, in which he taught that history is controlled by economic factors and is characterized by a continual conflict of the classes. Even religion, he taught, is a product of economic forces. Capitalists, he said, Marx wrote, we are the ones, capitalists are the ones, mostly, you know, the Western world, who conceived of the idea of a life after death. And capitalists did this so that they could hold eternal punishment or reward over the heads of the workers, convincing them, you know, to just, just be quiet and submit to their present status in life and work without complaining. So Marx said that religion is the opiate of the people and therefore should be eliminated. Religion should be eliminated. Well, due to Marxist ideas, communism began to wage war with the Bible and with belief in the existence of God and with the biblical teaching of a life after death and, of course, with the concepts of sin and divinely revealed moral absolutes. Instead, communism substituted materialistic atheism, you know, the belief that there is no God, God is dead, and the hope that one day a man-made utopia would be established on earth which would, of course, come about as a form of a communistic society where every man produces according to his ability and he shares in the goods produced according to his needs. That's what communism was all about. Well, we've seen in our day and age that communism doesn't work, does it? Well, while Marx was putting together his satanically inspired works, the old devil was working with another man by the name of... Charles Darwin, who wrote Origin of the Species in 1859. Darwin offered what he considered evidence for the gradual evolution of living things from simpler to more complex forms. And he explained that this evolutionary development takes place through the process of natural selection or what he called survival of the, you all know, survival of the fittest. That's why I love this particular little picture. Definitely survival of the fittest, and Jesus is the fittest. He will just eat Darwin right up. He already has, because... Even Darwin admitted on his deathbed that he really didn't believe his theory was fact. His theory shook both the scientific and the religious world. The impact upon Christianity was, sad to say, devastating. Because in asserting that man evolved from lower forms of life, Darwin was making a direct strike at the biblical view that man originated by a direct special creative act of God. Furthermore, in pushing back the date of the man's origin into the millions, you know, you go to those museums and millions and millions of years ago, Doubts were raised about the accuracy of the history of mankind, which is given to us in the Bible. According to the Bible, Adam existed approximately 6,000 years ago, not millions. So it was raising doubts in many, many 
people and, and many Christians who really didn't know the word of God like they should. And also Darwin's work, which obviously questioned the fall, man's fall, in the Garden of Eden, resulted in a new definition of sin. This new definition, are you ready for this? The new definition of sin by the evolutionists is that sin is the remnant of man's instinctive animal nature. But you know that animals don't sin. We sin as humans, but animals don't sin. They do what God has made them to do, what he has created them to do. They don't have a soul, and therefore they do not sin. Actually, they are very obedient to God. Well, as they said, as man continues to evolve, he eventually will lose his animal instinct to sin. Is that what we see going on in the world today? Huh. My goodness. And this, of course, is in direct contrast to the word of God, which tells us that evil men shall wax worse and worse. And that's, ex that's reality. That's what you read in your daily paper. That's what you hear in the news. Men are waxing worse and worse. Well, it followed that a new concept of sin, I'm almost done, would lead to a new concept concerning redemption. There would be no need for a redeemer to die as a sin substitute to pay the penalty for man's sin if there is no sin. And since there is no God, according to evolutionists, we came from a mud puddle, you know, some slime in a, in a primeval mud puddle. And since there's no afterlife... And since sin will eventually be removed in the gradual educating and evolving process of man, you know, who will eventually manage to overcome his animal instincts, since all of this, there's no need for a redeemer, right? Right. Well, evolutionists teach that the Bible and the idea of God and moral absolutes are merely products of the evolutionary development of man's religious consciousness. Therefore, the relationship of Christianity to all non-Christian religions is a not a matter of absolute truth versus error. The various religions merely, you see, represent different stages in the development of man's religious insight. Since religion is also in a continual state of development, evolutionists believe that Christianity will be replaced in time. In fact, they see it being replaced in time right now by a more advanced, broad-minded, and scientific religion, which will understand that there is no such thing as moral absolutes which bind men and confine them because of their fear of a holy God. And that's why we're in the situation we are in today with teenagers going wild in schools and killing teachers and ki killing fellow students they don't have any faith in a true god the rug has been pulled right out from under them there are no moral absolutes do what you want and seeing all the violence they see on television and videos it's no wonder that they're not all shooting each other well, for those who have accepted evolutionism as being true, there have been two resulting mental attitudes. One is despair. Many people found it impossible to reconcile Darwin's teaching with the existence of a good and a sovereign creator, and therefore their faith in God and in the Bible was destroyed. How many 
young people have been destroyed by going off to a secular university where they are brainwashed with this kind of stuff and their faith is destroyed. This is what God did in my life when I went off to my secular university and was taking anthropology and I, I got to the point of total despair. What is life worth? I mean, why? why are, I mean, we're not here for any purpose. There's no reason to life. If we came from some monkey somewhere and we don't have a soul and there's no afterlife and there's no God, what's the purpose in living? That's where I was, and that's when the Lord intervened in my life and, and showed me the truth of his son. But sad to say, many have settled into a state of despair because they haven't heard the truth. And I just praise the Lord. I know I'm going on and on here. But I praise the Lord for organizations like the Institute for Creation Research and Ken Ham's um, answers in Genesis. You know today, oh, praise the Lord, there are men who are rising up and they're telling people, you don't have to be called an idiot for believing in creationism. There are, there's so much evidence in this world to prove that creationism is the truth and not evolutionism. The age of the moon and on and on, the Grand Canyon, it all proves that there was a worldwide flood. And there is an ark there in Mount Ararat. I mean, we don't have to fear our faith. We don't have to believe this lie. This is Satan's greatest deception is evolutionism. And it just breaks my heart to see young people who have even grown up in Christian homes being persuaded by these atheistic professors. Well, for others, such as many 19th century Protestants, evolution was accepted as the process God used to create and maintain life. And by the way, please don't be deceived by what is called theistic evolution, which is a compromise trying to say that God did it and then he used the evolutionary process. That is a, another gigantic lie. I don't have time to get into it, but it's not, it is just a lie, an outright lie. It's trying to compromise two things that can't be compromised. So anyway, they decided, these liberals, uh, these Protestants decided now that God works within natural processes instead of by miraculous intervention. This view emphasized what is known as the immanence of God. Now, there is a difference between the immanence of God and the immanence of God. The immanence is that he's, he can come at any one moment, that Jesus Christ can come in the rapture. That's immanence. Immanence, with an A, speaks of the fact, that, not the fact, the idea that God is in everything. That God is in a rock, God is in a tree, God is in the stream, God is in the mountain, just like the American Indians believe. That is the immanence of God. That's what they believed. The people who were influenced in this way by evolutionism rejected the biblical teaching, of course, of a future theocratic kingdom on earth, which would come about through the direct intervention of God. And they substituted in its place the idea that the world would get increasingly better and better through human effort. And this is where we get those amillennialists that have arisen in Protestantism. Now, while all of this darkness was going on in the world, as Satan was attacking God's word and God himself with false prophecies, with destructive criticism, with commercialism, materialism, with communism, and with evolutionism, while all of that was going on, God was at work. 
God was countering Satan with an unprecedented time of Christian missionary activity. The light of his gospel message contrasted the darkness of man's sinful thinking, and it shone out all the more strongly. You know, that's why living in the dark time we're living in, if you shine for Christ, you shine all the more brightly against all of that darkness. And many, many souls were added to the kingdom of God during the Philadelphia stage of church history. However, all these new teachings that we've been looking at in the last 15 minutes were working together to set the stage for much, most of Protestantism to go apostate. They were setting the stage for the seventh and the final era in church history, which is the era of Laodicea. Remember what it means in Greek? The people rule. And that's what we'll begin to look at next week. But I am going to give you more isms. I know this has been a real study, but I'm going to give you some more isms that have led to this stage um, before we do look at our look at Laodicea. Thank you again for your patience. Thank